we believe that young people deserve really high quality facilities and spaces that are dedicated just to them. Purposely Podcast, amplifying the stories of people who are making a positive difference to society and the environment. People inspired by purpose. Here's your host, Mark Longbottom. A really warm welcome to Purposely with Onside CEO, Jamie Mazraff. Onside is a charity that helps young people find their passion and their purpose. Jamie has a non-typical path to charity leadership from corporate consultant, then local authority leadership. Jamie took a pay cut to shift sectors. He's risen through the ranks of Onside to the role of CEO, and he's been in the role for about six months. We have a really fascinating conversation. Before we jump into that show, please, whatever platform you're on, hit follow. It'll ensure you'll get future episodes and will also ensure I get the message out there. Enjoy. This episode of Purposely was brought to you by Benevity, the all-in-one software solution that benefits employees, customers, nonprofits, and society. Let's get back to the show. Jamie Mazrath, welcome to Purposely Podcast. Thank you very much, Mark. It's a real pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, great to connect. You're the CEO of Onside. What's its mission and what's its purpose? Onside, uh, we've got a really simple mission. So we're a UK charity that believes all young people deserve the chance to shine. And what we our focus is very much on what happens uh, to young people outside of school. So 85% of their waking hours are spent outside of school. And we uh, look to support the young people through in those in that period by building and supporting a network of incredible state-of-the-art youth centers, or what we call youth zones, in some of the most disadvantaged parts of England. Wonderful. And I've been to a couple of youth zones, had the absolute pleasure to... Uh to visit one in Wolverhampton. I've also been up to, up to Bolton. And in fact, I think I got across to Manchester as well. Just tell us about what they look like, because one of the real factors that jumped out at me, one of the things I really remember is that they're really aspirational buildings. They're big on design quality, and they really stand out. That's exactly right. And Mark, you deserve some real kind of credit for like getting out. You're earning your badges, your on-site badges of getting out around the network to see our youth zones, because we've got 14 across the country now. So we're working with about 55,000 young people aged 8 to 19 every year and up to 25 for those with disabilities. Plus, we have another eight youth zones actually in development right now in new parts of the country. So really becoming a a national movement. And you're absolutely right. So when you see, I mean, everyone has, I think, a, a picture in their mind of what youth clubs youth centers are, are, are like you know you might picture a, an old community center or a church hall that maybe the young people get to use a couple of nights of the week maybe there's a table tennis table there maybe a pool table maybe everything look, feels a bit low quality and we really try and flip this on its head so we believe that young people deserve really high quality facilities and spaces that are dedicated just to them and we feel it's really important. If we're going to try and give young people that message that they matter in today's society, you can't do that if you're, or it's really hard to do that if you're in a space that doesn't feel high quality to those young people. So the space that you say, they're very aspirational, they're bright, they're bold, they're loud, and they're, they're big, you know, they're the size of a small leisure center. And you go in as a young person, you become a member of your local youth zone, and you can take part in up to 20 activities every single 
evening, every single night of the week. And that can be climbing on the climbing wall. It could be learning how to cook in the teaching kitchen. It could be recording your own music in the recording studio. It could be doing an art project. It could be playing basketball. It could be just having a really crucial conversation with your trusted youth worker to help you navigate some of the, the challenges we all had to navigate growing up. But it's all there under one roof in their youth zones. Yeah, and um, I remember a presentation really well. And the, one of the factors that really stood out about the original youth zone, if you like, in Bolton, was that before the refit, before the you know, design took over and, and the, um, the, the building was made to be super aspirational, that they realized that young people were, were uh, visiting but spending all their time outside were more likely to go and hang out in the city center than hang out at the, the youth zone that was provided or the, you know, the drop-in center that was provided. And, and that's transformational, that sort of in-person youth work that you've now got a home for? Yeah, I mean, you're, you're, you're talking about the, I guess, the, in youth clubs, we've got to compete for young people's attention. You've got to make sure that it, it feels fun and interesting and important enough in that young person's life that they're going to come to that youth club rather than do other things. Uh, other things, in many areas, there aren't many opportunities, and that's why you, you do get problems with young people having nothing to do and boredom and being out. But actually, I also think an increasing problem nowadays is actually young people stuck in, inside their homes, on mobile phones, gaming. You know, we did a survey recently, three quarters of young people spend the majority of their free time on devices. So we've got those, you know, two that growing problem as well as, as a lack of things to do out of outside. But you're right, it all started in Bolton. So we're a, a charity going on for 15 years, and that the Bolton Lads and Girls Club has been going for 130. And the model and the way that we deliver youth work very much started in Bolton. Yeah, 1889, which is the opening of the first Bolton Lads and Girls Club, as it was known then. So phenomenal, you know, a long time ago, phenomenal. Tell us a bit, let's, let's dive in actually to the, to the history of it, because there's some individuals we really need to mention who um, have really superpowered it um, and had the vision for what it is now. And the person I, I kind of come back to is Bill Holroyd, entrepreneur, really is responsible for what Onsite is today and what the Youth Zones provide today. You're, yeah, exactly right. Bill is this visionary figure. He, so he took on the chairship of the Bolton Lads and Girls Club at um, would have been right at the, the turn of the century he you know talk, tells how he was kind of he'd done really well in business but was looking for something else something that maybe gave him a bit more purpose and a bit more meaning and he took a call from the then chair of the Bolton Lads and Girls Club and Bill was like what do I know about youth clubs but he, he visited and he, he got the bug he realized that we needed to do more for the younger generation in our society but Bill's all big vision. He felt that the what was on offer for young people in Bolton wasn't good enough. And he was lucky enough to also have an amazing chief executive of the time at the Bolton Lads Girls Club, another kind of visionary figure called Jerry Glover. Jerry had gone to America and had seen how they do it in America, and they do it so differently. They have the Boys and Girls Clubs of America where they have these amazing centers across the, the country where local businesses and public funding come together to deliver an amazing offer for young people. And Jerry came back inspired by this and said, why are we not doing this in our country? Why are we not doing this in Bolton? And there are dreamers, but they also made it happen. So they 
they galvanized the whole Bolton business community behind their new Boys and Girls Club. They got some uh, lottery funding to build an amazing new facility, and they opened this incredible new center, and the attendance has skyrocketed, the impact skyrocketed, and the whole community suddenly was galvanized. Businesses giving back to their local area, people volunteering and coming week in, week out. So it's had an amazing effect on Bolton. Did you think it was at a time, I think, particularly challenging because a lot of sort of work with young people had been really program-focused and had been talked about not necessarily important for people to come together or there was this move away from sort of more traditional in-person youth work. And this is sort of counter to this. And this is about creating an aspirational space. And this sort of thinking at the time was getting away from the importance of place. But when you look back and you look out, look out over the last sort of 15 years or whatever, to make that happen in this time and, and a time of austerity as well in, in British politics and, and there was a lack of funding around all sorts of economic challenges. But yeah, you, you've got to hand it to Bill and the team because the backdrop was challenging. Oh, it really was. I mean, to think, you know, Onside started 15 years ago. So Bill and Jerry started Onside in order to develop a similar, exactly similar model that worked in Bolton in new parts of the country. And since then, Jerry handed over to my predecessor, Catherine Morley, about 10 years ago. And Catherine again injected this real kind of ambition and, and growth mentality to Onside. And they took it from, you know, having a, you know, no base at all, this new charity, to now we have 14 these amazing state-of-the-art youth centers across the, the country in you know, lots in the Northwest, but also in Wolverhampton, three in London, another one being developed. So really being a leading kind of player, I think, in the, the youth sector in the country. And they did that, as you said, in a time of, of austerity. And I think that shows that there is that, that latent appetite, I think, in government, in the philanthropic world and businesses, they realize we've got to do more for young people. And I think having something that, that, that was very tangible that could show this was money well invested really was how that they managed to grow despite the kind of the, the tough economic climate they were in. Yeah, and one of the challenges would be from, and I know it was from funders at the time or say from government, was, you know, like quite risky, big capital builds, but, you know, they, we will build it, they will come, but young people don't necessarily come. And there'll be that concern that they become these sort of obsolete buildings. So these, so many risks they took or challenges they took. When you look back, and I know you, you weren't involved in the organisation at the very, very start, but why do you think they were successful? Why do they think they overcame some of those challenges, some of those issues around, you know, building and then people turning up and then, you know, lasting over time? I know the funding model changed. They would, at the very beginning, they would focus on, you know, raising the capital to build and then realize they actually had to raise two or three years of, of sort of running costs to start with as well, because that would be difficult. But yeah, tell us a bit about what you saw as the reason for success. Mm. I mean, I've been involved in Onside for six years. So really got involved when we started to set up the new youth in London. And I guess the things that struck me of why Onside has, has been successful in a period, let's be honest, where the whole sector has, has been challenging, I think part of that is just that entrepreneurial spirit that Bill and others really baked into Onside, where 
I think the challenges were there to be overcome. You know, they felt that what they were doing was so kind of almost obvious that even though there were challenges, of course, everyone was going to realize it was the right thing to do. And that enabled them to, I think, that pure confidence enabled them to bring on funders like the, the Queen's Commonwealth Foundation supported lots of our youth zones, Garfield Weston, St. James's Place, some of the big sector-wide funders saw this kind of energy and the potential for it. And I guess we're that confidence that came from Bill and others. I think the other key to this is the fact that it wasn't one part of society that had to do everything. You know, everyone looked almost, you've got the early stages of, of our growth. We had funding from the, the governments, the Labour government on the day, my place funding, and that provided some of the capital. And also local councils were putting in some of the capital and some of the revenue. And, you know, some of the big kind of philanthropists, the really well-known business figures in areas were also putting in. So, so it's almost like if it was down to one part, I think they all would have looked at us and thought we were mad. But because we were kind of almost like bringing all these different parts of society into the picture collectively, and they thought, well, if the government's giving money, well, they can't be totally mad. And the government was thinking, well, if Queen's Commonwealth Foundation is giving money, then they can't yeah. be totally nuts. You know, it kind of like created that yeah. sense, okay, they're onto something. And I think it's, it's a real example of, of vision, mission, momentum, and just keep on keeping on, right? That's all of those things. And I got a you know, closer view than most at all of those things. One of the key elements, and just focusing on, on the young people, they're very much built to help those on the margins of society. And, and you know, the term back in the time it was launched was, a, was around NEAT. So you know, that they were saying to funders that we're going to get those young people who are not involved in, in you know, education, employment, or training engaged and, and full of purpose. That was a sort of sales pitch. Young people who attend the youth zones, they pay, don't they? They And through that, they value the service. And you said, you touched on it before around, you know, they can take part in so many activities and do so many things. But I guess it's it's a bit about building confidence, it's getting people engaged, it's giving them a purpose. Tell us a bit about what the experience is for a young person. It's, I mean... I think firstly, I mean, I think just to reflect just how it is a tough time to be a young person right now. I mean, I guess every generation kind of feels that, but I think objectively now is, is a really hard period to be a young person. I think they're navigating a, a set of things that challenges that, that we didn't have to. I think there's growing poverty in this country and you know, now one in four young, one in four children grow up in poverty. There's four million children across the country. It's predicted to rise to 400,000 this year. You know, one in five young people are skipping meals every single day. So it is challenging. You've got social media, you know, all this, this extra, extra challenge, I think, of navigating that and the impact on mental health. So you've got that backdrop of, I think, a, a generation that is finding it tough. And particularly, you know, that challenge doesn't hit equally. We know it doesn't, doesn't hit evenly. We know that those growing up in our most disadvantaged areas, those challenges are doubled, trebled in every single aspect. And so what we want to do is we want to give this the, those young people in particular, like youth sons are open to every young person, but we put them in the, some of the most disadvantaged parts of the country to make sure that those young people can access them. And we want them to have a space where they can just be themselves and they can do what they want to do. They can have, they can develop really strong 
developmental relationships with adult role models or youth workers that can help who listen to them and can just help them understand who they are, what they want to be, how they want to engage in, in life outside of school and outside of home. And it sounds really simple, and this is the kind of essence of universal youth work, but it's so powerful, particularly in a time where these type of spaces and that type of support to youth workers are ever more scarce on the ground. Yeah, phenomenal. The timing of this and the fact that you've got, you know, an eight in development, I think you said, didn't you? And, and you've already got a good level of provision across the country and very much in the areas that they're needed most. You know, looking at your role, and I'm, the thing that sort of screams off the page at me is the sort of safeguarding headache that you must have. Because, you know, these centers are open seven days a week, 52 weeks of the year. These all sorts of issues, I'm sure, on a daily, hourly, weekly basis. But how do you keep everyone safe? How do you make it all work? Like, I know, and you, and you touched on it a bit earlier around, you know, these sort of real ownership from the community. And, and a lot of these youth zones have, you know, they have advisory boards and they're sort of the key stakeholders are, are local. But tell us a bit about some of the issues that you face. And is this safeguarding one of the biggest things that you, you know, cover off? I mean, absolutely. I mean, safeguarding is, you know, our, our number one issue and priority for us. You know, as a as um, a youth charity and working with the young people that we do, we are so focused on making sure that the youth zones are safe environments for our young people, but also that where young people come to our members of the team and disclose things that are happening outside of the youth zone that that youth zone is a trusted partner, can make sure that that young person is is heard, listened to, and supported in a way that needs to happen. Sadly, we're seeing a real rise in those disclosures because of the challenges happening outside of, of youth zones. But in a way, it's great. It's a sign that their youth workers are so, they're trusted, they're, they're trusted people in those young people's lives that they can disclose these things. But the way, I mean, safeguarding is a good area because we are, we don't run all our youth zones directly from on-site. And I think if we did, I think we'd fall over because we're talking about 14 different parts of the country with very different needs and and kind of growing ever remoter from the kind of on-site itself. So the way we took a decision fairly early on to set each youth zone up as an independent charity with its own board, with its own staff team, that was firmly rooted in that community it worked in. So the Blackburn Youth Zone is absolutely part of Blackburn. And its board is made up of leading figures from Blackburn and staff and volunteers are recruited from Blackburn. And it is responsible for its own running. But what we do is we as a we are formed a kind of collective, a network of charities on site in all the youth zones, and we provide and maintain a certain set of standards across all area across our network and that includes really strong safeguarding support uh, to all those individual youth zones so that's the way we've done it's that mixture of local independence but with central support and um, yeah central support wonderful Sounds like a great model. And then, so you joined the organization originally in a relationship role or sort of fundraising role. And I'm taking it back to 2017 and you sort of 
risen through the ranks and now CEO, made CEO in September 2021. That's sometimes quite a unique or different way of arriving at CEO. But um, how's that been? And, you know, from the very minute you joined the organization, did it sort of capture your heart? Oh, I mean, it captured my heart before I even joined, to be honest, Mark. Like, I was, um, I was, uh, I think it's fair to say, a bit lost uh, in terms of my career choices before I joined Onside. I'd always wanted to do something, I guess, that had a social purpose and struggled to, to really find that. I worked with some local councils beforehand and then just came across Onside because I was working with Barnet Council. And uh, Barnet was one of the areas in London where they were developing a youth zone. And I was just, I, I actually went up to visit Wigan uh, Youth Zone, an amazing example of the youth zones in our network. And I just, I just found it so, just so tangible and practical. It wasn't trying to be anything other than what it was, which was just an amazing space for young people. It allowed them to be themselves, gain confidence and really kind of do well in life. And I met up with the other people within Onside. And I'll be honest with you, I kind of had this impression of charities before I met many of the team. And I was like, oh, they, you know, lots of they, they, they mean well, but do they actually deliver? And that's always been a big thing. You know, I like doing stuff. I don't like necessarily talking about it. I want to do it. I was just, you know, on the side, just had that whole, you know, let's just get on and do it type of mentality. And I had a random conversation, not looking for a job, just curious, really, about what they were doing. And an opportunity came up. And I jumped at it. And I have, that was six years ago now. So as you say, I started, my original job was a relationship development manager. So that's the easy job of going to local councils across the country and trying to convince them to part with about five million pounds of cash and a big chunk of land and some running costs as well. So that was a, that was a fun induction to onside. I bet. And then yeah. my, my role just has changed kind of over the last six years. I think it's a great place where you get, you know, if you, if you do well, you get given new opportunities. And I've benefited from that. I really have. And I really kind of evolved leading the, the youth zones in London. There's three that started out in 2000 and, oh, when was that now? 2019? No, 2017. <laughs> I've lost, lost count on years. 2019. And then, yeah, my role's changed ever since. And I've really, I've been very fortunate, I think, to be part of this bright dynamic charity where i think it does give people opportunities to thrive yeah so you and you would have taken quite a reduction in pay right so you'd been doing some quite strategic stuff for local authority you'd had a sort of corporate finance experience as well but you, you know i imagine joining on site and, and heading into the non-profit sector that it was very much a decision around purpose not personal profit or or uh but that was important to you at the time? Like you thought actually you really want some meaning in your life? You're, you're spot on. Or more meaning? You're spot on, yeah. And I took a lot of grief from some of my friends, particularly those in the, like, the, kind of, the banking world and that type of thing. Like, what are you doing? Really? You're going to sacrifice your pay at this stage in your life? And I, it, it was, I think, I do think we overfixate on these type of things. And I always think with all jobs, you've got a, you've got a combination of, things you're trying to satisfy through them and for me as you said i was doing some kind of strategic roles in local councils and it's easy local councils get a bad rep and i'm not going to add to that because i think there are some amazing people in local councils who do wonderful things but for me i found it hard to just get things done they're such big systems 
And while there's lots of good meaning, I, for me, I found it personally a struggle. Uh, and I was looking for something where I guess I could, you know, the classic trite phrase wanted to make a bit more of a difference personally. So that purpose was a real clear criteria for me. I mean, I was, you know, it's, I was very fortunate as my wife has a really good job. She supported me, said, if this is what you want to do, go do it. You know, don't just think about salary. And yeah, it's been a really good decision for me. You know, I recognize it's not, I'm very fortunate to be able to make that type of, type of decision. And moving from, you know, employed, a role, you said relationship and development, you went on to sort of director of operations and then becoming CEO, like great progression, looks fairly straight line, but but it won't have been right. It wouldn't have been straightforward. That's quite a leap to CEO. I know you haven't been in the role too long, but you'll have experienced enough now to, what is that journey through the ranks like? And how hard is it for, you know, those relationships maybe internally to change? Suddenly when you take the reins, Give us a bit of a, a feel for what it, that's been like coming from within the organization to lead it. So the, the difference from going through the organization before the point of becoming, so I've only been chief exec since January, so I'm a really, I'm a green chief executive. I really am. I haven't burnt the house down yet. I'm trying not to, but in my, my early, early days. And um, you know, in, in previous promotions that I've had, I think they're much easier, I think, than this recent one to chief executive. Because I think when you become chief executive, the, the script doesn't necessarily exist. You know, I think in other roles, you have guidance from your, you know, your boss, or it's been someone else who's done that role in the past, or you kind of, you know, you're, you kind of, you're, you're fairly clear about what you need to do. But with chief executive, it's, it's a much more an open blank sheet of paper than I've ever had in any role. And that I found a struggle. Just the, the sense of, am I focusing on the right things at the right time in a way that I haven't had in other kind of changes. I was really also, I was really wary about the, the feeling of my, there's some amazing people in Onside and I was worried of them looking at me and thinking, what, what are they doing? Are they mad promoting this guy, the chief executive? What are they, what are they thinking? I'm not going to, you know, why am I going to respect this guy? And I, you know, I think everyone has that type of fear, but I definitely felt it prior to becoming chief executive. But I mean, they're, they're an amazing group. They really are. The, the whole, everyone in Onside, but particularly that senior team who have offered me nothing but support and goodwill. So I think a lot of that was in my head before the change in role rather than the actual reality of it. But the thing that is reality that I found a lot more challenging is just that, that it's up to me to decide where to focus my time. I have struggled with that. Have you? Yeah. Does it keep you up at night more so when than you were, when doing other roles? Like what? What have and what sort of things have you put in place to ensure that it doesn't sort of run you over and and the sort of enormity of it get become overwhelming? Mm. This is another one of these I really worried about before I took on the role. I'm someone who, you know, I'll tell you really openly, I've struggled with particularly workplace anxiety pretty much all my working career and struggling to put things in perspective, really worrying before big meetings and things were coming up, worrying the night before, getting that feeling on a Sunday evening before Monday start, that kind of feeling the pit of my stomach and that kind of dread feeling. In almost every job I've had, actually, I mean, for what it's worth, I I decided to 
I did some cognitive behavioral therapy and it actually really helped me um, give me some tools to manage that. But I was, I was concerned before I took on this role was, as you said, would it take over my life? Would I be able to put the guardrails in that would stop it from doing that? But the reality so far is that it hasn't. If anything, and this is weird, I don't, can't quite explain it, but I actually feel less anxious in this role than I have done in other roles. I don't know if I'm just still in my honeymoon period. Maybe the reality is, is going to wait around the corner to, to hit me. But I think there's something around that autonomy and it's all my own expectations that actually makes it for me easier to manage. Yeah. But we'll see. There's still a work in progress here. And any practical steps to, you know, in the early weeks and months that you've taken to sort of ensure that it's a good experience for you and you, because I think a lot of it is if you use up all your energy, your mental energy, your physical energy on anxiety and, and worry about what might go wrong and then, then you won't have enough left for the organization. But any sort of practical things that you've done to ensure that you've kept a cap on that? Mm, I mean, quite a few. I mean, first of all, I would highly recommend a, a coach. So I had this incredible coach, Sally, uh, who was absolutely brilliant at helping me kind of just kind of put aside some of my demons in my head and think with confidence about what I wanted to achieve. And then also just having a very clear plan about what I wanted to achieve in the first six months, first year, I think keeping myself, you know, holding myself to account for that. Just a little thing that's really helped me is if I'm worrying about something, what I tend to do is any kind of it almost it's like gas filling a vacuum, you know, air filling a vacuum. It kind of like expands into the space you allow it. So instead, what I what I now do is I say, right, here's when here's the thing that I'm worried about. When it is, I'm going to put in some worry time here in my diary, and that's going to be worry time about that thing. And then if my mind starts to go back to that, then I'm like, no, I've got this time. I'm only going to think about that then. So uh, practically, that has helped. And I think trying to just be um, not, I'm not, I mean, I'm really not trying to work every weekend. Uh, I, I don't want to work weekends. I want to have my life outside of work as well. Got two amazing kids, my wife, I want to spend time with. So trying to be strict with myself with that. Yeah. And sometimes you think the power of listening as a leader, and actually less is more saying less, because quite quickly you can compromise yourself, right? Because you, you get to emotional, too headstrong, too set on an idea, maybe without listening. And then you might change your mind and, and you're sort of, actually, I really wish I hadn't have said that. But sometimes being a leader is about being quite guarded with some of your thoughts. And at least, and it, that's one of the things that often people find difficult is it could be a lonely at the top, as they say, but particularly in nonprofit world where you've limited in resources. But yeah, have you found yourself sort of on one hand, being your authentic self, but at the other, at the other stage, sort of amending a little bit about how you interact with people? Yeah, I'm not so much, to be honest. Not so much. I mean, my, I'm a naturally a listener, which is funny when you say when I'm talking all the time in a podcast, it's hard to, <laughs> hard to, uh, for that to feel right. But I, I am a naturally a listener. So I, my tendency is to try and understand someone's point of view and where they're coming from. Um, so I, I, maybe that stands me in good stead for this. Uh, we'll see. But I haven't noticed too much my kind of way of, I, I tell you one thing I have noticed is that, which I need to sometimes 
I need to stop myself being like, I have the answer to this and wanting to be like, I can resolve this. That whole personal sense of, oh, I'm the chief exec. I should have the answer to this. I should resolve this. And I'm, that's a, a tendency I definitely have in myself that I'm trying to like keep under, under wraps. Well, just, just hold back a bit because I think the tendency is, you know, the, hey, I'm, so many times I won't have the right answer, but also it's not the way to grow an organization is for them to be relying on one person for the answer. And that's the thing I've, I need, I struggle with. I need to get better at, I think. Yeah. That's, I think it's a really good, really good observation. Um, absolutely. And taking you back a bit, you know, you went to university, you studied hard by the look of it, you've overachieved, you've ended up, you know, sort of navigating consultancy and, and some, you know, some impressive jobs and you've ended up in purpose. If you look back to your sort of youth and childhood, what would indicate that you might end up focusing on purpose and wanting to make the world a better place? Well, that's a big question, that, isn't it? A really interesting one. Because I um, I always had this sense of, I don't know, like the, 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 I remember feeling really strongly about anything that felt unfair. Like I was, I went to a, a fee-paying school, but I was a scholarship kid at a fee-paying school. And maybe it was from that, that sense of the unfairness of it all. You know, you've got, I could see the advantages that, so many that I went to school with had and they had no idea of it you know they didn't they didn't appreciate it they didn't value it it just was and they expected to do absolutely fine in life thank you very much just by pure chance of where they were born to and I was kind of almost on the sidelines of that because I was at that school but my life outside of school felt quite different to many of my friends and other people in my class um so I think I grew up with that sense of well that's not fair is it that's not right and it probably always pushed me to do something that felt, you know, in purpose, I think. Um, I mean, I definitely, you know, you've got to be careful with the advice you get. I remember one of my mum's um, friends telling me at some point in time, oh, don't study history because it's like it will never get you a job. Do something uh, useful like economics. I ended up doing economics and finance and I hated it as an undergraduate. I think it's a good lesson. Don't always, don't always trust the advice that you get. But despite, you know, that would have led me more to a kind of more banking type of, financial services career but I was never tempted by that I always wanted to do something different when I finished that that undergraduate so I guess it's always been there latent in me and um yeah on has been a great you know uh, an amazing charity that's helped me to to feel I'm, I'm actually fulfilling some of that side of me yeah and you're the son of immigrants so the migrated from Armenia to the UK is that right is that Part your part of your family's sort of history. It is, although it was a totally not just neglected, I think actively hidden part of my family for the early my early years. So my my dad is half Armenian. His father is fully Armenian, and they came. They're Armenian Catholics, which is kind of already you're you know, you're Armenian, then you're also Catholic, and makes it even tougher. And they lived in eastern Turkey uh, around the turn of the nineteenth century. And then moved through Egypt and then Switzerland and then, then to London, moving as many Armenians do. And I think my dad growing up, grew up, was born in London. I think for him, he wanted just to be a Londoner, like quite a classic kind of, I think, often kind of first generation migrant, you know, they just want to belong. So we didn't really think at all about Armenian ancestry or family or anything like that. 
until so much later on. So my dad, I think, turned around 60, I think, wanted to rediscover some of his roots. So then we took trips out. But I don't, I don't know how to Armenia, and uh, I spent some time actually working for a charity over there, a beautiful, uh, amazing country. Uh, but I don't know how it's affected me in terms of my mentality. I don't know. Definitely, I kind of, I don't feel, I don't feel Armenian. Yeah, I feel I'm one one generation too far removed. I think. And looking in terms of for the future, and like you said, you're relatively new into the role, and you're still, I'm sure, you're still listening, learning, forming your opinion on certain things. But you know, what do you think the future looks like for Onside? You've obviously got a, a bit of building to do. You got a bit of funding to raise, and you know, I'm wonderful to see that um, Onside is stretching to the to Bristol in the south of Bristol. So that's that's fantastic. But we talked about economic and social backdrops previously, and and unfortunately that stuff hasn't let up, and it's very you know tough times. And you said before around some of the things that young people are facing, you know, twenty percent skipping meals. We're right in the eye of the storm of lots of things around the cost of living and poverty. But what do you see for onside over the next 18 months to two years? I think there's a mix of the practical and the, the, the kind of the wider, more strategic. So practically, as you said, we've got a lot of building to do. Eight youth zones that we are developing in the next three years. And that's in Bristol, in Grimsby, in White City, Crewe, Preston, Salford, Thurrock and Barnsley. So eight amazing new youth zones opening up. If you're a young person from those areas, you can have an incredible new space just dedicated for you. And we've got a lot of funding together, thanks to the Youth Investment Fund, government's flagship um, capital funding for youth facilities. We're very grateful for that. But we've still got more to raise in, in many of those areas, and particularly for the running costs. We need to start each of those youth zones off with a that strong financial footing through bringing businesses and philanthropists together in those local areas to support their youth zone. Um, and we'll have to get them staffed and we'll have to get all the, the, all the places, pieces in, in place for that. So that's, you know, we will, we're very focused on that. At the same time, we are, our job is twofold. We need to open new youth zones and support the network of 14 youth zones already open. And for them in particular, times are tough. You know, it's a costs are going up. Demand's going up because of the challenges facing young people, and it's a tough environment to fundraise for. So we are always looking at what we can do to support those users. And like you know, organisations like you know your 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 ex, the St James's Place Foundation, who are brilliant uh, at that. They helped us provide free meals across our network to all young people for the the previous six months, which has been amazing. So those are the you know the practical side, but the to me the bigger piece over the next eighteen months is we. On the side, together with the wider youth sector, we need to do more to demonstrate the absolute crucial importance of youth work and youth workers. Because I think they are, they're so incredible, our youth workers, and they're so undervalued by government, by the business community. They give young people the skills that they need for future jobs. They give them the confidence and resilience to go on and to make kind of to aspire to do better in life. They keep them engaged at school. They do so many incredible things, but they're undervalued. And that is our bigger mission, really, is to, to really use the great examples we have across our network to increase the attention uh, and value placed on, our, on youth work. Yeah. And the best youth workers are often, you know, being young people who've faced 
tough times and been through tough things. Are there examples, well, is there an example that you can give our listeners of someone who's, because, you know, your onside is sort of old enough now, but where a young person's life has been turned around, even if you don't mention their name, but is there an example that sticks in your mind from your time with onside? Oh, there's so many. There are so many. I mean, I'll take, I, I, I won't use her, her real name. We'll call her Jenny. Who, so she really like a shy retiring kid who she spent all her time at home in her bedroom, really found it difficult to engage, didn't have any friends at school. But her mum had heard about the youth zone when it opened up, was going to open up in Barking Dagenham. And her mum was absolutely determined that Jenny was going to become a member and go to the youth zone. So she reluctantly came in and kind of you know, was supported by the team, particularly Clinton, our, our music youth worker, over in Future Youth and Embarking and Dagenham. And lo and behold, Jenny had the most incredible voice. But she never had the chance to really have the confidence or the opportunities to really do anything with that. But with Clinton, slowly, she was able to, to gain that confidence. And since then, she's sang at the Royal Albert Hall as part of the Onside Awards Incredible Ceremony a few years ago. She's now taken, got her own band and she's doing music, um, local music festivals. But it's more than that. It's not just the, the music skills that she's developed. It's she's just changed as a person. She now has lots of friends. She's seen as a, a kind of a, a real kind of a role model for so many of the younger kids. She's taking part in kind of the network-wide activities for onside, and her future has just changed by it's the confidence attending the youth zone and youth workers like Clinton have instilled in her that actually she is, she does matter, she does mean something, she's worth something, and she can achieve something in life, and that is gold dust. It really is. Yeah, because I think we're all, we all need people like that in our lives, don't we? So we all have had, or hopefully has had, someone who's believed in us. At a crucial point, and that belief is gold, right? You, you touched on there. Like that's what you're selling is belief in young people and a space and an opportunity for them to, to sort of reach their full potential. Exactly. Jamie Razruff, massive thank you for joining me on Purposely. Real pleasure. Thank you so much, Mark. Thanks for listening to Purposely Podcast. Please subscribe and leave a review. I hope you like what you're hearing, because I sure do.